Okay, we are moving into our second topic. We've got a lot to cover, so you're going to have to listen quickly. Okay. <laughs> it will help. It will help. And so, just a reminder that our, our overall theme is, is what God is doing in the world. And we've very much covered the intervention of God through Christ, becoming human, entering humanity, entering history, entering chronology, entering geography. Um, and, and so Christ intervened. That, what God is doing in the world was absolutely supreme in Christ. Uh, and then we're going to now look at the kingdom of God and we're going to see how that connects. Um, and it, it intrigues me a little bit because um, we talked about the book of Acts and I know you're going to look at this in more detail in a later session. But of course, how does Luke begin Acts? In my former book, Theophilus, friend of God, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So there's a bunch of stuff just in those first couple of verses. So Luke is saying, I told you what Jesus began to do and teach. So he didn't do. It's a bit like what you said before about not just believe, but carry on believing. Jesus didn't just do stuff. He began to do something. And the essence is that through the book of Acts, his people are going to carry on doing stuff in his name. So, you know, the end of Matthew, all authority is being given to me. Therefore, you go. That's Jesus's way of saying authority is being given to me. So I give authority to you. That's what it means to go in his name. And so even Luke connecting what he said about Jesus with the other gospel writers. I told you what he began to do. In other words, he's going to carry on doing stuff. He's going to carry on doing. And how is he going to carry on doing it? Giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit and the apostles in partnership are going to carry on doing stuff that Jesus began. So that's critical over everything we look at. So I'm going to try and be a little bit ambitious now. There's going to be a diagram comes on here. And uh, the diagram is going to sum up the whole of human history, the whole of the Bible and the whole of cosmology. Okay, <laughs> the whole of the universe. But before that, um, I'm a fan of a guy called Reggie McNeil. He's hilarious if ever you hear him preach. But his writing's good as well. Reggie McNeil says this in a brilliant book, Kingdom Come. It came out in 2015. Really great little book, Kingdom Come. Why not just do what the church should be doing? Partnering with God in his redemptive mission in the world. And let the overflow of that effort bring about the renewal we're looking for. It's time for the church to get over its self-absorption and self-centeredness and adopt the larger and more compelling story of God's kingdom as its reason for being and its mission in the world. I love that. Church has got to get over itself. And uh, as I said, the uh, PowerPoint um, you have either got or if it's in your spam somewhere, get it out of your spam. Uh, you will get it one day. So you'll, you'll get everything that's, that's up here on there. Um, one of, and there's another guy called Alan Hirsch who writes some good stuff. And I read a book just last year. And this, the first line was, I used to believe that God's mission had... No, that I used to believe that the church had a mission. That's it. I've got to get the right way around. I used to believe that the church had a mission. And when I read that, I thought, Ooh, I thought, I thought we're supposed to believe that. I, I, I used to believe the church has a mission. Now I know that the mission has a church. <coughs> Now that sorts the priority out. And that's what he's saying here, really. You see, if we end up thinking that the church is about the church, we've missed it. Which is why I put on here, 
And I, I don't know, I've probably said this for years, I don't know if I've ever read it anywhere, but I see the church as God's agent for his coming kingdom. God's agent for his coming kingdom. The kingdom is prior. Because if we're not careful, we end up with this thinking that we have a church, and then the Trinity, that we now understand everything about, obviously, we think, oh, the Trinity suddenly said, well, God became flesh, came down, rescued his people. We've got a bunch of people now. Oh, a bunch of redeemed people, a bunch of saved people. What should we call them? Let's call them church. Okay, okay, okay. And the Trinity have a chat and say, okay, we've got this thing called church. What should we, what should we do with them? Oh, yeah. Uh, I know, I know. And so one of the Trinity, sorry, Lord. One of the Trinity says, I'll tell you what, let's find something for them to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what can we, oh, let's have a think. Uh, Holy Spirit, you got any ideas? God the Father, you. And so, so you end up with a bunch of people called the church and let's give them a mission. That is absolutely the wrong way round. We have to see that God had a mission. God had a mission. And the ultimate supreme fulfilling of that vision is when Christ came and began to do and to teach. And the, and the mission then was given a church. The mission comes first. And the mission is the coming kingdom of God coming kingdom of God. So, let's begin this diagram. Right at the beginning of history, right at the beginning of humanity, right at the beginning of the Bible, God makes a beautiful world. Um, we don't know what to call that because what comes next defines it backwards. We know that the next thing is the fall. But we've got to start before the fall. We sometimes, as followers of Jesus, get so taken on some of these words you might have heard, like sinful depravity. We blame a bloke called Augustine for having that incredible negative view. No, no. Before humanity had depravity, humanity had huge dignity. God created a beautiful world, a beautiful planet, and beautiful humanity. Male and female, he created them. He didn't create mankind in his image and add girly. He created male and female together in his image. And he said, hey, male and female together in my image, go forth, multiply, fill this planet and help me look after it. Facilitate life. And you know in early Genesis, God said, God created, and it was good. God said, God created, and it was good. God said, God created, and it was good. And the first time that he says it was very good, and the only time in creation, in the creative narratives where he says it's very good, is when God had created humanity in his own image to partner with him in his mission on the world. In other words, right from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God created a planet and created human beings to partner with him in stewarding the planet and in seeing his kingdom come. So the big single line we've got to take is at the beginning it was good. Great planet, great, wonderful relationship with God and with one another. God created a beautiful planet. It has a good start. So there's dignity of humanity. There's the plan of God in mission. Then we know this thing called the fall. We're not going to get into Adam and Eve and apples and snakes and all that sort of stuff. But we know the fall. The fall was about independence from God. It was about a broken relationship, a damaged relationship. It was about sin coming in. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we get focused on sins 
And sins are like the naughty things we do. We need to look at a higher level. It wasn't sins and sinning that came in. It was sin fundamentally being independence from God. Humanity choosing to do its own thing. That's where the naughty stuff comes from. But primarily, sin is about independence from God. So the fall, and it was actually a fall from God's plan. And broken relationship with sin entered. And that, as the Bible tells us, ushered in this present evil age. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about this present evil age. This world ain't right, is it? My, um, I always think of this, I don't know why, but my sister uh, is a... A senior social worker. I'm also I'm also thrilled to bits that my mum is equally proud of my my sister's ministry as a social worker as my ministry as a pastor. You know you know that old fashioned unbiblical thing of thinking proper ministry is being pastors and teachers and preachers. No, that's one type of ministry. So my sister's also ministry. She just happens to be paid by Stockport Social Services. In fact, she's a she's something called the Lado now, whatever that is, local authority designated something or other. Uh, every now and then, my sister would phone me. And she would just say, 10 o'clock at night, Pete, can you pray for me and three or four very big policemen? At five o'clock in the morning, we've got to break down a door and we're hoping that the little ones are still alive. This world ain't right, is it? This world ain't right. It's fallen from what God intended. It's fallen from what God intended. This present evil age. But Jesus comes! <gasps> Hallelujah! As charismaniacs would say. Jesus comes! <laughs> Jesus comes! And Jesus brings his kingdom. We've said before that in Matthew's gospel, for example, twice he talks about ecclesia, called out people, church usually translated, that gathering of people. Twice he says that, but 54 or 56 times, depending on translations, kingdom is the emphasis. So the kingdom of heaven is ushered in. And so when Jesus comes... He comes and ushers in his kingdom and he establishes the age to come. He establishes the age to come. And so therefore, after Jesus came, he put the world right. And now the world is perfect, isn't it? Hang on a minute. No, it's not. Which is why on here I've put a dotted line. There was a scholar in Manchester in the 1960s called C.H. Dodd. Great guy. And he used the phrase, the kingdom has been inaugurated. Inaugurated. In other words, when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom. He inaugurated, but it's not in all its fullness. And so although Jesus has come, the present evil age at the bottom continues. The present evil age continues, but he did establish the age to come. His kingdom come. And so he's established his kingdom, but the present evil age continues. And we know that Jesus will come again. And suddenly when he comes again, we should refer to the first one as Jesus' first coming. But we didn't know it was his first coming because we didn't know he'd be coming again. But we now are in expectation for Jesus' second coming. When I was a kid, maybe it was the church I was part of, I used to hear masses about the second coming of Jesus. It was, and maybe because it was the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s even. And, we were all expect, and I knew some people expecting Jesus to come back in the year 2000. So there was all this emphasis about Jesus coming again, Jesus coming. And then a bloke called Schofield wrote some a Bible. And that influenced a lot of people in lots of different ways. It got so complicated. And I, as a young guy in church, teenager, was at these 
huge big conferences all about the second coming of Jesus. It all got weird. It all got very complicated. And there was lots and lots of speculation. And eventually people gave up. And so they no longer talked about the second coming of Jesus again. I want to ask you to join my crusade to begin to remind ourselves, you know what? Jesus is coming back. But without having all the weird beliefs that sometimes goes with that. Jesus is coming back. And so we need to think that. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, that bottom line will finish. This present evil age will be brought to an end. And the Bible makes it clear that first Satan, then his minions and demons, and then those who have rejected Christ's offer of salvation will be thrown into Lake of Fire. And there's a whole load of stuff in that. Don't ask me questions about that because I lost Richard. Um, but at the end of all the ages, um, that's the end, if you like, of, of human history. End of Bible. That's when Jesus comes again and this present evil age is brought to an end. But it's also the time when what was previously inaugurated comes into all its fullness. What was a dotted line will become the age to come forevermore. And we, as redeemed followers of Jesus, will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're co-regents with him. And so, when Jesus comes again, present evil age will finish. The age to come which was inaugurated will come then in all its fullness. And we live here. We live in that turquoise, teal, whatever you call that colour, square. We live in there. And um, here's a quote from a guy called Oscar Kuhlman. Now, he was writing uh, probably 10, 15 years after the Second World War. He says this. Between the two comings of Jesus lies a short but important span of time already indicating a fulfilment <laughs> and an anticipation of peace. Yet it is from the decisive battle now won and the victory day yet to be achieved, that this span of time gets its meaning and its demand. Now, what he's deliberately doing here is he's talking about the decisive battle. No, sorry. <laughs> the decisive battle and the victory day. He's using that type of language very intentionally because he's living in the shadow of the Second World War. And he's wanting to bring back an allusion to what he considered and many considered to be the decisive victory of the Second World War, which was D-Day. And he draws an allusion between Christ coming in his first victory being like D-Day. It's like God came from heaven, put his flag on the beach and said, the kingdom of heaven is here and it ain't going back. And if you remember Saving Private Ryan, that film when all the Americans and one or two Brits helped in the D-Day victory. But you know, there was a time lag between D-Day, the decisive victory, and V-E Day, victory day. In fact, it was celebrating it this year. And I hope you've spotted that bank holidays moved. Have you noticed bank holidays moved from the Monday to the Friday? So we're on a Friday bank holiday instead of a Monday bank holiday. And that's because we're celebrating VE Day, Victory in, Euro Victory in Europe Day. And so the, the point he's trying to say is when Jesus came the first time, it was like D-Day. He came from heaven. He landed on the beach of earth and says, this is the kingdom of heaven and it ain't going back. But like the human D-Day, there was sacrifice. There was death. It in many ways, looked like it could have been a defeat. But from D-Day onwards, military historians will say victory was inevitable. 
But it was some time before victory was reached. He says D-Day was Calvary. And when Jesus comes again, it will be victory day. He draws that analogy. And I love that notion because in between D-Day and victory day, the Allies still lost some battles. I've sometimes prayed for people to be healed and they're not healed. Does that mean Jesus ain't coming back? No, it just means there's a bit of a gap before we see him again. See, between D-Day, D-Day was a huge sacrifice. And after D-Day, there were some reversals for the Allies. But historians say victory was inevitable. So he draws that analogy. And we live in the kingdom now, as people would often refer to it. So if we say, has the kingdom of heaven come? We say, yes. And not yet. And that's the tension we live in. So has the kingdom of heaven come? Is the kingdom of heaven within us? Are we within the kingdom? The answer to all of that is yes. (laughs) And so the kingdom of heaven has come. But you know what? It's been inaugurated. It's still a dotted line. So we live in the tension of this. And we live in a a chronological tension. If we want to sort of think about the the left, right across here. We live historically, chronologically in that tension. We live after the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary and we live before the coming of Jesus again but we also have an up and down tension going on here because if you are a follower of Jesus the kingdom of heaven is within you therefore there is that within you that has the pull of heaven you want to please Jesus you want to get to know him better you want to read his bible You want to pray with him and talk to him and hear him. You want to live righteously and wholly set apart for Jesus and his kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven was in you. And you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Because we're still part of this present evil age. We still have the... Oh, socks. (laughs) You see, when Paul talks in his writings about this, he says, well, we've, we've got here, we've got the spirit. We have the spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God lives within you. And so we have the spirit of God within us. And so that is a droplet of the kingdom. If you have the spirit of God within you, you have a droplet of God's kingdom. But you know what? You're also a fallen bloke. And a, I was going to say a fallen woman. That sounds wrong. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean? We are, we are fallen people. <laughs> You've got to be careful with your language. And, you, and, and, and we live in that tension. Do you know what? I hate plastic pretend churches. I think as soon... I mean, we, we had a, a, a mate that knew both of us. But as soon as I met Richard, one of the things I loved about you... And obviously not Jim. But one of the things I loved about you <laughs> um, was, was authentic. I, my kids have seen everything of church. My children, who are now in their 20s, one in their 30s, they can smell inauthentic 100 yards away. We've got to be real. We live in the tension. There is that within me that yearns for the spirit of God and to please him. And there is that within me that given half a chance will dig myself out of a hole with a lie. Or find something dodgy on the internet and watch it a little bit longer than I should. Or relish something that I shouldn't. Or think something. Oh no, I must be wicked and evil. No, you're just a fallen flesh. Live honestly in that. I really don't like plastic churches where everybody has to pretend that they're just at the top line. We live in the tension. There is that within us that yearns for all that God is in his kingdom. But there's that within us that is still that fallenness. 
We live in that tension. It's really important. And so we think a little bit more that when Jesus came in his first coming, so he came, he was born in Bethlehem, sinless life, miraculous ministry, suffered, died, buried, rose again, ascended, glorified, seated at the Father's right hand. Is that all he did? Or what did he do after he was seated at the Father's right hand? He sent the Spirit. Did, did Jesus send the Spirit? Think carefully, trick question. He said, see, this is where you see how the Trinity works. See, the, the, we believe in Trinity, but Trinity is a team, and the team has a captain. So Jesus had done his bit and goes up to captain and says, hey, Father, can you send the Spirit? And the Spirit says, I'm not going, look what they did to him. <laughs> now I know there's a risk that hardline evangelicals will think that's very irreverent um, I, but I deliberately said that because sometimes we forget the, 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 the humility of the spirit see Jesus humbled himself all that Philippians 2 stuff Sorry, Jesus humbled himself but so did the spirit and so Jesus did what theologians call the Christ event. All that stuff from Jesus um, coming from heaven and being born as a baby. From there right through to ascending to the Father's right hand and asking the Father to send the Spirit. All of that Christ event, as they call it. Um, so the Holy Spirit comes down. He asks the Holy Spirit to come down. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon whom? Us, the church. The called out ones, the ecclesia. And so Galatians 1.4 says that we are called out of this present evil age. We're called out of it, but we're still in it. I mean, John 17 is so clear. Do not be of the world, but you are in the world. We live in that tension all the time. We're not of, but we are in. How do we find that tension? And so the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And therefore, and it's fascinating that when you look through, for example, the book of Acts, and you find lots and lots of miracles, lots of healings. Well, who did those miracles? Oh, God, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did those miracles? Peter and John. Yeah. So who did those miracles? Partnership with God in seeing his mission come. It's right back to Genesis 2. I want to partner with these men and women who are in my image. See, there's the continuity He's still about seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The church is not the church without the life of the spirit, the breath of the spirit. That is who we are as a church. Even the Bible says the body without the spirit is dead. Have you been to that church? <laughs> you see, we have example. The body without the spirit is dead. The church needs the Holy Spirit. And in a, in a qualified sense, because I'm always nervous of beginning a sentence with God needs, <laughs> But the Holy Spirit needs, in a qualified sense, the church to express himself. See, the Lord Jesus Christ had a physical body. The Holy Spirit does not have and will never have a physical body. Other than the body of Christ, us, through whom he expresses himself. So the church needs the Holy Spirit, the life of God. John would cheer that. The church needs the life, the spirit of God. But the spirit, in a qualified sense, needs the church to express himself. Also, I was doing some teaching on this. Funny enough, where's Peter? In the black country. Yeah, and there's some clever people in the black country. I was really shocked. And, um, <laughs> and I, I, referred, I referred to, uh, to this Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 1.22. So let me put that in here. Just to... 2 Corinthians 
122. And, um, and it's just fascinating me. 2 Corinthians 122. Um, he anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I love that. It's in Ephesians 1.14 as well, if you want the same thing, Ephesians 1.14. And what fascinates me is I was saying that when, when Jesus went, sent us to heaven, asked the Father to come, it says here, he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. It's really funny. I teach a lot of young people at our college and they don't know what deposit is. It's like, and so I say, well, when my mum wanted to buy a fridge, I was 12 and we'd never had a fridge at home. My mum went to the shop and she put down a deposit of five pounds and then she paid a pound every week for the next 18 weeks and then we got a fridge. <laughs> it was cheap in those days. Um, but you say to young people, they say, well, why didn't you put it on credit card? Oh, this is going to take a while. So back in the olden days, you would pay for things before you got them. <laughs> you know, like now we get them and then pay for them 10 years later. Um, so so there's, the concept of deposit was putting something down and guaranteeing that more is to come. So I was talking about this, the spirit's a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. And, and I happen to talk about the Greek word, which is arabone. Arabone. You put a line over the O so it turns into an O. And so the word that's translated deposit is the Greek word arabone. Arabone is deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. Well, I'm speaking about this in the black country. This guy comes to me, and I, I dabble in Greek, believe me. This guy comes to me and says, oh, that was fascinating little word you said about arabone. He says, because uh, I'm Greek. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he said, uh, obviously, I know that the New Testament was written in, in Koine Greek. It's called like street Greek of the day. But there are connections with contemporary Greek. And he said, you talked about arabone being the deposit guaranteeing what's to come. He says, did you know that um, in contemporary Greek, there is the word arabona? And arabona is, comes from the arabona. I thought, oh, that's great. I said, what does arabona mean? He says, oh, that's simple. Engagement ring. Oh, and I had a penny-dropping moment. And I thought, the Lord Jesus Christ... He came, he died, he rose again. He asked the father and he says, lean down to my church and give them an engagement ring and say, I'll be back. We are engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have married dozens, maybe hundreds of people, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> it must be an odd number if you include my wife. Um, engaged couples, they are giggly. They are excitable we had a, a couple and, and it was a sad situation with some bereavements and divorces and stuff but we had a couple in, in our I, think, I hope i can say this i'm going to incur the wrath of you and oh no i won't tell you his name um but but a few years ago in their latter years this wonderful guy and this even more wonderful lady um started going out together they're like in their mid-70s and Matt Town, Matt, who was then my assistant, he had to tell him off for canoodling in church. I mean, if I'm going to say you're in your 70s. So even then, there's that giggly excitement. Do you know what? I really, really get so frustrated with boring church. If you are ever counselling a couple who are preparing for marriage and they are boring, tell them to stop. Because if they're boring when they're engaged, what the dick is it going to be like when they're married? So church should learn from this. Jesus has given us his engagement ring. He's given us 
and said, I'll be back. We should live as giggly teenagers. But there are as many of us would here would say, it's really exciting being engaged. But you know what? <laughs> it's better being married. Anyway, we need to move on. <laughs> and that's what will happen when Jesus comes again. I remember one of the first times I was asked to speak in my youth group. I was about 16 or 17 and my youth leader, Colin, asked me to speak and he gave me a topic and a Bible verse. I had to speak about the consummation of the bride. And I looked it up. It was rude. It was rude. <laughs> oh, 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 that's what consummation means. You know? But you see, we're, we're, we're engaged. That's what happened when God gave his spirit to his bride and said one day, I'll be back. Let's live as giggly teenagers in anticipation of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a little bit I want us to think about, which is from the Old Testament. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know the book of Isaiah, Prince of the Prophets, he's referred to. And Isaiah is probably the go-to. There's lots of prophets who do it, but he's the go-to one who prophesies the Messiah is coming, the Messiah, the Christos. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. But if you know Isaiah, there are two word pictures he paints. One of them is the Messiah is coming and he will be the suffering servant. And we know there's four big songs. Isaiah 53 sometimes is read in communion services. He's the suffering servant. So the Messiah will come and he will be the suffering servant. But then also in Isaiah, the Messiah will come and he'll be the conquering king. Well, make your mind up. Is he going to be the conquering king? Or is he going to be the suffering servant? Well, the truth is this. When he comes in his first coming, he's the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. He dies as a suffering servant. But when he comes again, he will be the conquering king. We live between Christ giving himself as the sacrifice and the suffering servant and he coming again as the conquering king. And so when Isaiah who's living somewhere in here, about there-ish, and he's looking prophetically that way. And it's almost like he sees in the near hills, we live in Herefordshire, look out over the, over the Herefordshire, it's beautiful. But in the near hills, he sees prophetically the suffering servant coming. But in the distance, he sees the conquering king coming. It is not two messiahs, it's one messiah coming twice. And then, of course, if you fast forward to Revelation, and in Revelation... Revelation 5 and so on. And he looks and sees the Messiah and he sees the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God. He's the suffering servant. But as I looked, I saw the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, he's both. He's the suffering servant. He's the conquering king. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the roaring lion. He's both, and we need to get that picture clear in our minds. And so we live in expectation of him coming soon, but also he's being the conquering king. And of course, when we think about the spirit and the church coming, you know right at the end of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So that's the diagram. That's explained the whole of human history, the whole of salvation, all in one go. Um, I just want to uh, wave this around at you in case you want to read anything further. This is a really helpful book. It's not that big. <laughs> Don't worry, it's only that big. Okay, you've seen Father Ted. That's far away. Uh, 
So win the world or escape the earth. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later, but if you did want to read more about that, um, Ian Russell and Tony Wastel, as I say, you'll get this all on the PowerPoints when you do get hold of it. Um, masses of really, really helpful stuff on that if you want to think it through more. But I, was, I want us to, to grapple with something um, and get you thinking about something just for the next couple of hours. Um, I'm looking at this because I'm going to draw something on it in a moment. Let's start with this. So if we go back to here, we live here. We live in the tension of the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. We live in the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. So do we live in the kingdom? Yes. Do we live in the fullness of the kingdom? Well, not yet. We're engaged, but we ain't married. How, how does, what does that look like in practice? So if we live in the kingdom now and not yet, in everyday life, how do we get this theological balance correct? And this is huge. It's theological, but it's immensely practical. It really is. I wanna, hopefully we'll have time for about four or five examples of this. I might leave some of the other stuff. Um, so... There's a tension we need to see. And the tension is this. I love spectrum. Spectra. Spectrums, whatever you call them. Uh, we live kingdom now and kingdom not yet. But we're in the middle of that. We're in the middle of that. So, for example, let me, let me just use one example to get us thinking. And then we'll look at one or two more. So, if we're talking of this spectrum... Make sure I get it right way down. So we're saying kingdom now is here and kingdom not yet is here. If we were to think as an example, what shall I take first? I'll tell you what, I'll take first healings. So let's look through the lens of healings, miracles, miraculous healings. If we were to look at our belief in healings through the lens of kingdom now, that would mean. Okay, we have the experience of the fullness of God's kingdom right now. Everything that we're ever going to get from God's kingdom, we can get right now. So if we think of healings, what would that mean? Everybody we ever pray for is going to be healed. Because our belief is everything is there and we experience kingdom now. And so one extreme, if we're thinking of healings, would say everybody we pray for is going to be healed because we have a kingdom now view. Everything of the coming kingdom we have access to now. However, if we have a kingdom not yet view, and I grew up in a church, oddly enough, a Pentecostal church that was strong in this view, then healings, we're going to see them in the sweet by and by. See, kingdom not yet puts everything away into the future. Kingdom not yet says one day when Jesus comes, all the benefits of salvation, including healings, will be available to us when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes and we're in heaven forevermore, there'll be no sickness, no illness. There'll be nothing at all physically wrong at all. I remember hearing <laughs> a, a lady went to the pastor who said something like that and said, what about people wearing glasses? She said, no, no, we won't need to wear glasses because our eyesight will be perfect. She said, I don't think I'll like my husband if he doesn't have glasses on. <laughs> so this pastor thought very quickly. He says, OK, I'm sure you'll be able to get in heaven, like, you know, just glass lenses. <laughs> so, but, but you see, the kingdom not yet view of healing is that actually we ain't going to see anything in this age. It's just token. It's just compassion. It's just laying hands on people to, to be nice and cuddly. And let's be compassionate. It's, it's the spiritual palliative care. But actually, we ain't going to see any healings. 
until kingdom not yet. But in the sweet by and by, everybody will be healthy, everybody will be well, everything goes there. You see, in the kingdom not yet view, everything's very pessimistic now because it's all reserved for the future. But in the kingdom now view, whoa, that sounds exciting. Let me tell you about Mike. I was a very young pastor, very young pastor. I was about 20, about 27, something like that. Just become the main pastor, I think, 27, 28. And in Stockport, and a guy called Mike came to see me. We knew each other a little bit. He was in another church that would declare itself to be a faith church. And Mike came to me, and, he, he, and I knew he'd had a severe accident, got knocked off his push bike, and his eyesight had been damaged really badly. So he used to wear these like, sort of bronze-tinted um, glasses with lenses about an inch thick, you know. <laughs> Um, great guy, big guy. But he came to see me and I said, Mike, how are you doing that? He says, oh, I need to see you, Pastor Pete. Um, he says, in my church, um, I, I, I do love my church, but I, I, I've obviously had this um, accident about a year, a year and a half ago, and, and they've been praying for me, and, and, and I wasn't getting healed. And because I wasn't getting healed, they said I need to have more faith. So I tried hard to have more faith. And I, and I do have faith. I do believe. I do think God, yes, I but I still wasn't healed. So after a while, they said, oh, you must have demons in your life. So we need to be casting some demons out of your life. So by the time Mike came to me, big guy, he was in floods of tears. And I have to say, his eyes were the least of his problems. Because with a poor theology of kingdom now, of healings, he had been told that every single person that is prayed for will be healed. And lots of things are said for that. And he said, Pete, I do believe. I love Jesus. I do believe. I do have faith. I haven't got any demons. Honestly, I'm not going to demons. Really sad. That's a pastoral example of when you go here. See, that sounds really optimistic. Sounds really positive. But it's not biblical. It really is not biblical. And it's funny how people say, oh, everybody Jesus saw that was ill, he healed. That's bunkum. You'll see that in the notes, the full notes we got for the Gospels. Jesus didn't heal everybody he ever came across. No way. I mean, who was left in the book of Acts to be healed for a start? Apart from anything else. Um, and so how do we find that balance of being somewhere in the middle? See, this is, sounds very optimistic. Yes, everybody we pray for will be healed. Everybody we pray for will die, but in heaven they're going to be great. How do we get this? Now, just for some of you. Some of you like long words. I know that. I know that. <laughs> so for those who like long words, if you read this in a theology book, this will be called over-realized eschatology. Now, you're going to be looking at eschatology. I think it's the last session of this, uh, this school. Um, eschatology is just <laughs> two Greek words. <laughs> eschatos, logos. Logos, word of the study of. Eschatos is the end times. So eschatology is the study of the end times. And when it says over-realized, what that means is, going back, if I can, quickly to this diagram, it's saying that we have such a belief that all the benefits of salvation are available now, that's called an over-realized eschatology. In other words, we're almost believing more than is appropriate to believe, which can sound weird, but actually it's good theology. But then if you put it all into here and say, oh, life's going to be really dreadful, but in the sweet by and by one day, everything will be okay. That's called an under-realized eschatology. So that's just for those who fancy the long words. But if you don't like long words, kingdom now, kingdom not yet. So here's my question. Have we got time for this? Let's do this just for two or three minutes. Um, this 
is an over-realized eschatology. It's believing more than the Bible says we should believe. This is an under-realized eschatology that says life is incredibly horrible. Nothing's ever going to work when we pray for people to heal, but at least in heaven we'll all be healthy. That's under, that's over. Here's my question. How do we have a just about rightly realized <laughs> eschatology of healings? Solve that in three minutes with your friend. <laughs> How do we do that? How can we get towards a just about rightly realized belief in healings? Expectation? So, I'm not going to ask you to solve that one. <laughs> I just thought it might be helpful to grapple with it. Let us now look through a different lens at the same issue and this might help us inform it we're not going to solve it just on healings but let us think about something different let us think about if I can spell it right just made it <laughs> so let's think about sanctification through these same lenses um, so we're talking about kingdom now kingdom not yet I'll tell you what I would probably say with all of these, it's fairly easy to identify the extremes. But how do we get it right in the middle? That's the challenge. So when we think about sanctification with this sense. So sanctification, the process by which we become more like Christ, more holy. Holiness is not about avoiding sin. Holiness primarily is about being set apart for God. So it's not about being clean. It's about being set apart for God. But if you're set apart for God, it's probably good to be clean. And so, so sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, fruit of the Spirit growing, etc. Now, if we then look at sanctification and look at the kingdom now, that would mean we have very optimistic views of what sanctification would be like now. In other words, we're very optimistic about how much um, the fruit of the Spirit and the person of Christ can be formed in us now. Spiritual formation would be a more contemporary uh, angle into this. So if you have a high view of that, well, what does that look like? Well, I remember when I started studying 30 years ago at the Nazarene Holiness College in Manchester. And uh, I was uh, grown up in a Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God church, and people warned me, watch out for the heresy. And I'm like, oh, heresy? It says they have the heresy of sinless perfection. And I'm like, ooh. And they said, I said, what's the heresy of sinless perfection? Oh, sinless perfection is they believe this. And they don't. Um, they believe that the Holy Spirit falls upon you distinct from conversion. And it means that it's impossible for you to sin ever again. And I'm like, well, if that's a, if that's a heresy, it's quite a good heresy, doesn't it? I'd give me that as a heresy. And so sanctification through a kingdom now lens would say the Holy Spirit and our expectation is so high of the kingdom being formed in us in this life. That we fully and totally can become just like Christ and it's impossible for us to sin. That would be classed as heresy. Why? Because we have that downward pull. We have the upward pull of the spirit, but we have the downward pull of the flesh. We talked about that. I think we spot that as a heresy reasonably easily. But what about the not yet? What about the under-realized? What about the pessimistic? I'll tell you what, I think we do this. Because if we're not careful... We have followers of Jesus saying, oh, I'm still a miserable sinner. Well, you might be miserable, <laughs> but you're not a sinner. You're an ex-sinner. You see, and we still have this notion, if we're not careful, and we can misunderstand some of what Paul says, is that although we've been set apart from God, although we've been sanctified, um, actually, we're still miserable sinners. 
No, no, no. And the challenge with that is if you think biblically, there is one word used all the way through the New Testament for the people of God. And that is saints. And the word saints is the Greek word hagios, or in the plural you turn it hagioi. Hagios is singular, hagioi is plural. And hagioi means holy things. And in the context of the sentence where it's talking about people, it means holy people. And so when Paul says to the saints at Colossae, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Corinth, and if anybody was a miserable church, it was Corinth. Um, but his defining word for followers of Jesus is saints. And so I would want to argue, I'm not sure I would want to believe in sinless perfection. Holy Spirit causes it so we can, it's impossible to sin. But I wouldn't want to go the other way to say, actually, I'm still as rotten as I ever was. But God justified me. So although I'm still as black as I ever was and terrible as I ever was, God just pretends I'm not. It's not that. See, there's a huge difference. And, and I think we get it wrong because if we keep on preaching in our churches, we're miserable sinners, we're miserable sinners. That defines us. And if you're defined as a miserable sinner, guess what you're likely to do? Miserably sin. <laughs> but if we say, actually, we're saints, we're saints, holy ones. But then we say, yeah, but I thought you said we can sin. Oh, but there's a world of a difference between being a miserable sinner and a saint who might occasionally sin. The best analogy I can think of for this is that I've got three kids. And remember our Tim, who's our, our eldest? He hits 17 and he says, Dad, I want to drive. Can you, can you, can I borrow your car keys? So I said, oh, okay, here you go. Here's the car keys. Um, I'll tell you what, if you're going out in the car now, let me give you this form. This is the insurance form. Um, this is the insurance report. This is what you fill in when you have a crash. I'll tell you what, let's put the details in now. Let's put the car reg. Let's put today's date. I'll leave the time blank for you so that when you crash, you just put the time in. Let's sign it all now. You go, you, yeah, there you go, mate. There you go. Ha, ha, there you go. Here's the keys. Whoa, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that because that's expecting him to crash. On the other hand, I wouldn't say, oh, there you go, mate. I've got no insurance, but you go for it. Because I want him to go out and drive. But he's a driver who might occasionally crash. But if we send Christians out as crashers, they're going to carry on crashing. Because it defines them. But if we are saints who might occasionally crash, that's a world of a difference. So take out the insurance. I'm a saint. I'm set apart. I'm following Jesus. And I'm living clean for him. But if I get it wrong... He's faithful and just and forgives us all our sins. We've got it with us. We've got to help people to go out and drive who might occasionally crash. See, that's a just about rightly realised. We, we are saints, but we are saints that might occasionally crash. But we're not people who it's impossible to crash. And somewhere in there is finding that balance, which is really important. Um, let me just, I'm going to finish on some stuff. Yeah, I was going to do demons and deliverance, but we'll leave that because that will take a while. <laughs> Let's just think about heaven and hell like you do. Um, do you know what fascinates me with this whole thing of, of what we expect for the future and what we expect for now? Um, I, I think when I was, when I was growing up, I, I was in a church that was quite pessimistic about the future. Every single Sunday we would finish this song called By and By We'll See the King. The pastor was elderly. The church was quite elderly. We were all just waiting to go to heaven. By and by we'll see. It was all in the sweet by and by, all in the hereafter. And I'm like a teenager. I wanted to do stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, 
But then in my 20s and 30s, I got connected. A guy called Colin Urquhart was setting some stuff up and I got connected to him a little bit and as a young pastor. It was wonderful. It was brilliant. And Colin Urquhart was an absolute gem to, to connect with a little bit. But through that connection, I got connected with some people who would be far more ultra faith, shall we say. And I suddenly realised there's an optimism that is more optimistic than the Bible says we should be. Because if you say, well, actually, for healings, you've got too much faith. How can you have too much faith? But there's a right expectation. So if we see that every time we pray for somebody to be healed, there will be times when droplets of the coming kingdom come now. There's a verse in the New Testament that says about powers of the age to come are breaking through. We used to sing it years ago. Powers of the age. So when somebody's healed, when somebody's set free, when somebody's set free from addiction or a marriage is reconciled or a parent child reconciled or when somebody's healed or when somebody's delivered from demonic influence or whatever, whatever, it helps the person. But it's also a power of the age to come breaking through. So our mission in this life, in this world, is to be available to the Holy Spirit to see more and more of the life of God come. But... We have to accept that it will never fully come until Jesus returns again. And finding that balance is so important. So we can believe for too much. In fact, I remember years ago, we used to sing a song called, um, He Will Usher, uh, no, We Will Usher in, you know, We Will Usher in His Kingdom. And I remember thinking all that, and I'm not sure about the theology of this and whatever. Then I got talking to see some of these ultra faith people. When I drilled in with a few questions, they said, actually, to be honest, whether Jesus comes back or not is irrelevant. And the reason being is because we will usher in his kingdom. Therefore, we have such an optimistic view of church that we can do it. If Jesus wants to come back, that's fine. But actually, no, 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 no. I believe, as the diagram told us, that it will always be a dotted line in this life. The kingdom will never come in all its fullness. But we don't just watch and wait. Oh, the kingdom's going to come one day. No, we are active. Filled with the power of his spirit, we are ones who see his kingdom come. So therefore, the second coming of Jesus is not some sort of rescue mission for a poor withering church that's hanging on. Oh, come and rescue us. We actually used to sing a song, whether some of you know this, we don't still, um, called Hold the Fort. I remember singing this as a kid, and, and I think it was number 666 in the hymn book. <laughs> you would have missed that out, wouldn't you? It's like row 13 on the plane. Um, and, uh, and, and the whole message was the church is really withering away. We're all wrecks. We're all pathetic. We're all hopeless. Come and rescue us, Lord Jesus. No, no, no. We've lost the image of the bride and Jesus coming for a victorious bride. And so we are not withering wrecks. The second coming of Jesus is powerful. And when Jesus comes again, what was previously dotted will become a solid line. In other words, what was partial will be fully. It's always going to be partial in this life. But our mission is not just to hang on and wait. Our mission is to be active participants in being available to the spirit to see his kingdom come, which is why our remit is on earth, which is why we could pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That'd be a handy prayer because that's what the mission is all about. And then, of course, when Jesus comes again, he will establish that forevermore. And we have to say, well, what does that look like? What does heaven then look like? Well, the weird thing is, is that Christians, 1 Corinthians 15 is the go-to chapter. Christians, we will have new bodies just like Jesus. If you've got a gammy body, if you, my age starts, starts with a six now. Oh, and, um, and I went to the doctors last year in Bromyard and this doctor lady, she's known for being like straight. And I had this slightly thing on my eye a little bit and it's fine. And she says, well, Mr. Reed, 
Sometimes we just have to come to terms with the degradation of the human body. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. But you know what? <laughs> we believe as followers of Jesus in the glorified, resurrected body. Our, not just his. He's the prototokos, he's the prototype. We will have glorified, resurrected, physical bodies. And they won't be physical like this, but physical like his, but they'll still be physical. And then we have this weird, cloudy thing about what heaven's going to be. Well, how the heck can we have a cloudy, mystical heaven if we've got physical bodies? Do you know what? We need a physical heaven. Let me ask you a question. If, if the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth, if there's no earth, it's a disappointed meek. <laughs> and then we talk about the world being destroyed by fire, but does destroyed means obliterated or does, dis, does destroyed mean refined? Because fire is a meta, biblical metaphor of, of refining and purifying. So maybe, just maybe, this world has a future purpose. And instead of us escaping the earth to go to heaven, maybe our mission is to win the world. And maybe, just maybe, if you visualise the world at the beginning and then the world at the end, you think of Genesis 1 and 2. The river, the trees, the life, the, the garden. And then Revelation, at the end of the book, the river, the trees, the life. Ooh. You see, if God makes a beautiful planet and at the end it's all burnt up and destroyed and annihilated, who's won, God or Satan? But if God makes a beautiful planet, which Satan tries to mess up and screw up, but through his redemption, he doesn't just redeem his people, he redeems his creation, then maybe, just maybe... Our heaven is a renewed earth. And that then affects the way we look at the environment. Because we probably need to look out if, after this world if it may be needed later. Just a thought. So, just to finish, there's some other stuff on here. Reggie McNeil, again, and I'll finish with this. We tend to think that our past prepares us for the future. Because that's how we experience it. The reality is the other way around. Future challenges inform today's preparation so we can meet them. The kingdom is a future that's always invading the present. Every expression of good, of victory over evil, of transcendent beauty points us forward into the kingdom. Every aspiration of hope is an echo of a preferred future pressing into today's world. This eschatos that you're going to hear more about later in this year... We are not on a journey wondering where we're going. We know exactly where we're going. When Jesus comes, we will, as the bride of Christ, rule and reign with him forevermore in heaven. Brackets, maybe renewed earth, just saying. <laughs> and everything in this life is pulling us to that. We're not just wandering through life wondering where we're going. The eschatos, the end times, that's not somewhere we're going to end up. It's somewhere that God has planned. And every single nuance of life is part of our journey to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to see his kingdom come more and more and more, knowing it cannot come in all its fullness until that glorious day of the Lord when he returns. Amen and amen.